This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, with Martin Luther King Day behind us, I've been thinking quite a lot about the dream of equality in this country. In some ways, we've come so far, and yet it still seems we have far to go. But at least we're starting to see some meaningful parity with the passage of the health care law. Well, I think we've seen that in our own organization, Mark. So many people who struggled in the past to afford health coverage due to near poverty or pre-existing conditions now covered and not just covered, but covered with good insurance, making a big difference in their lives. And for that matter, millions of lives around the country, according to a recent survey by the Commonwealth Fund. Uh, one note is a study uh, recently revealed that there's a notable drop in the number of people who put off accessing health care services due to the cost or lack of coverage. That percentage dropping from 43% of Americans down to 36%. It's the first time those numbers have gone down since the Commonwealth Fund began tracking those numbers. Well, I think it's important to note, too, though, that the study showed that folks who live closer to the poverty line still had trouble paying all their medical bills, and that's primarily due to the plans with higher out-of-pocket costs. But even those numbers showed some improvement. The number of people who received treatment but had difficulty paying their bills dropping from 41 percent to 35 percent. These data are also uh, supported by findings made in a recent Urban Institute study, which showed that the ACA was reducing coverage differentials due to race and age and gender. And as we know, Margaret, the best pathway to better health is facilitating access to preventative care. And with millions of Americans newly covered under the health care law, we should uh, continue to see some steady improvement. But how, how we access care in general is also changing, Mark. We have a new era of health care where televisits uh, will be very sufficient to fill uh, many of our health care needs, especially our episodic needs. And smartphone apps can track most of our essential health data. All of this hopefully uh, serving to help patients be more empowered in their own care. And that's something our guest today is one of the world's thought leaders on. Dr. Eric Topol is a practicing cardiologist and the director of Scripps Translational Science Institute. He's a champion of the potential for genomics and telemedicine to reshape the future of healthcare. He'll be chatting with us about his newest book, The Patient Will See You Now, The Future of Medicine is in Your Hands. Well, it's always a pleasure to hear from Dr. Topol. And Lori Robertson will be checking in. She's always on the hunt for misstatements spoken about health reform in the public domain. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And if you have comments, email us at chcradio at chc1.com. Find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. Now we'll get to our interview with Dr. Topol in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. What you pay depends on where you live. As tens of millions of Americans gain insurance coverage under the Affordable Care Act, rates do vary widely across the country. While insurance rates in Colorado actually went down slightly, largely due to more choices for those purchasing insurance, folks in Alaska saw an average 30% hike in costs for standard silver plans on the exchange. Turns out Sunbelt states tend to have rates on the lower end of the spectrum on average. California, which has been considered something of an ACA success story, is grappling with some supply and demand issues, not enough options in certain parts of the state. In 22 mostly rural Northern California communities, only one choice of insurer is available, and it's causing problems for consumers there. 
A milestone in the Ebola outbreak. Schools were reopened last week across the small West African country of Guinea, one of the hardest hit Ebola hotspots. So far, the disease has been largely contained to that region of the African continent. More than 20,000 have been infected. Roughly half of those patients have died. One of the challenges for scientists battling this current outbreak of Ebola, the genetic structure has changed about 3% from its 1970s genetic makeup. The mutation makes drug development a little more uncertain. China is confirming at least 15 serious cases of bird flu in recent weeks, three of whom have died. The rest are critical. There have been ebbs and flows of outbreaks since 2013, 450 cases so far. And while China is beginning to look to renewable energy as a replacement for current fossil fuel use, air quality continues to deteriorate across the country to multiple times the legal limit for breathing. Toxic air in China is believed to be responsible for 750,000 deaths per year. And smoking is a choice that leads to an estimated 450,000 deaths per year in the U.S. The online financial site WalletHub did an analysis showing smoking costs the American economy some $300 billion-plus per year. The average smoker, if they smoke and survive over a lifetime, will have spent about $1.2 million on cigarettes and will incur an average of $150,000 in medical bills and will lose an average of $200,000 of lifetime earnings due to smoking-related illness. I'm Ariane O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Eric Topol, cardiologist and director of Scripps Translational Science Institute in La Jolla, California, an expert on the use of telemedicine and genomics in healthcare. Dr. Topol has written several critically acclaimed books, including The Creative Destruction of Medicine, and most recently, The Patient Will See You Now, The Future of Medicine is in Your Hands. He is editor-in-chief at Medscape, a web resource for physicians and health professionals. He earned his medical degree at the University of Rochester, where he was awarded the highest honor, the Hutchinson Medal, for his contributions. Dr. Topol, welcome back to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you. It's been about three years since you joined us on, on the show, and so much has, has changed over this uh, short time since we've chatted. The discipline of genomics and telemedicine have exploded in areas that you say are poised to be the two biggest game changers in healthcare. Your new book, just recently published, the patient will see you now. You examine how far we've come in putting the power of healthcare into consumers' hands and tell our listeners what have been some of the most exciting developments in the medicalization of smartphones. Well, thanks, Mark. It's really been uh, a uh, an extraordinary jump in the technology where what was a smartphone that changed our everyday lives. It has now become capable of a hub of medicine that is not just that you could capture all your sensor data like your vital signs, do your labs, uh, do imaging, uh, but also, of course, things like uh, your physical exam, being able to summon a doctor uh, either immediately through your video secure link or uh, even to your home. So it's become uh, a device, this little device that could really transform medicine. It could democratize medicine by empowering, super empowering uh, consumers. 
Well, Dr. Topol, I want to pull that thread a little bit. You've likened this phase we're entering in the world of healthcare as akin to the development of the Gutenberg Press, which democratized access to the written word in the 1400s. Um, and you note that there's a longstanding tradition of what one could call paternalism in medicine and healthcare that goes all the way back uh, hundreds of years BC. But as you say, this medicalization of smartphones, the free flow of information from patient to providers has the potential to democratize healthcare in a way never seen. So expand on that a little bit for us. Right, Margaret. Well, it is not just the access, um, but we're talking about leveling the playing field. That is, uh, for all these years, millennia, uh, the doctors uh, have been in control and the information uh, flowed to them. Uh, and uh, patients didn't have access to their own data right. uh, and, in fact, you know, really had a hard time getting it. Well, that's going to change drastically because not only are things digitized, but now patients are generating their data, you know, whether it's uh, their blood pressure or their glucose. They, they, that data is going to their phones that they own uh, about their own body, and uh, it's no longer really acceptable for the medical community to own the information. Uh, so, in fact, what's going to happen in the short uh, term, I, I believe, is that we have a whole new model where the patient will see you now. That is, calling the shots um, much more in charge than ever before. And, in fact, uh, access to information not just about themselves, but, for example, cost data. You know, cost data has been an unmentionable part mm -hmm. of medicine. Doctors didn't know the cost or didn't want to discuss it, but now that all that data will be accessible through one's mobile device. And whether it's a scan or a lab test or an office visit or whatever, it, a person will know what the cost would be before they have this. So these things are all happening at once. It's happening quickly. And of course, we have this paternalism that you mentioned. And this, of course, has to give way to this altered, I think, very improved model. Now, your point about the Gutenberg and democratization of information and reading and the printed material, I, I do think, although some would say that's a, a reach, I do think that this has the parallel of our time in medicine because we go from the medical community controlling everything, having the real information flow, to a whole different look where it bottoms up a great inversion of how medicine is practiced. You know, we just uh, recently had entrepreneur and angel investor Esther Dyson on the show talking about what she looks for when investing in health technology. And she uh, said, we don't need another cute app. Uh, there are tens of thousands of them on the market already. But she thinks non-invasive sensors hold the promise for disrupting the status quo in healthcare. It's going to generate a lot of data, all that needs to be secure uh, to travel through. And that's an area that still needs some work. Tell our listeners where we are in this, what needs to be enhanced to make sure that uh, the information uh, is secure. Well, right, Mark. You've brought up two critical points. Uh, one is about privacy and security of the data, which we do not have safeguarded in any way. That is, there's been great white papers written by the White House, uh, but no action has been taken to, uh, to control the data, to prevent its sale, uh, you know, so uh, this is a uh, right now the um, the medical data which is so uh, precious and needs to be preserved as private. We don't have that um, nailed down at all. That has to get righted. The other thing that you brought up is about the analytical side, and you know, in the Wall Street Journal piece, I talked about how 
uh, we're pathetic at analytics. <laughs> right. and, and we are. That is, we hoard all this data, big data, enormity of data, but we do very little processing and analytics of data. And part of that is we don't have the, the talent, the data scientists, the code developers, also known as code doctors, to write all the algorithms and do all this great analytics. And we have right now, for example, Esther Dyson is right, the, the sensors, uh, whether they're wearable uh, or uh, other ways that we can track one's own information in the context of their of their lives. But what about this immense data torrent? How is that going to get processed? And ultimately, how is that going to be used for predictive analytics mm-hmm. to prevent and preempt illness, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. certainly possible? And so this is exciting, but we're way behind in the analytics. We're way behind in the security and privacy. We've got to work on that. That's what's holding us back right now. Well, I'd like you to take a closer look at telemedicine and the promise this holds for increasing patients' direct access to a provider. And are we seeing with the the burgeoning of telemedicine uh, and and virtual visits, which I uh, read and was astonished by actually that one in six doctor's visits were virtual in 2014, according to an analysis from Deloitte Health. And certainly there's still some resistance um, from the medical establishment, maybe from patients, but you see telemedicine as a game changer. And I'd like for you to just paint a picture for us, if you would, of how practices will need to change to embrace this promise of telemedicine. And is it in the context of a relationship with a provider or is it a commodity from any provider? Yeah, I think the telemedicine is just one dimension to this mobile device makeover, rebooting of medicine. And that is because uh, it takes so long to get an appointment with a primary care doctor. The average is over two to three weeks in some cities, uh, as much as six weeks. Well, (laughs) that's not going to work. We live in a whole different culture of I want what I want when I want it. And, you know, this whole uh, concept of instead of there's an app for that, there's an Uber for that. (laughs) And that is this whole thing about you can get what you want immediately. Yeah. And if you're, it's 2 o'clock in the morning and you need to get a consult, you can do that now. Now, that doesn't mean to undermine your primary care doctor, but the uh, mismatch of mm-hmm. demand and supply is profound. Mm-hmm. So it turns out we need to really gear this up. And part of it is financial. That is, it costs the same to get an immediate video consult as it does for a copay if you go to the doctor and wait several weeks. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's 30 to $40 and you get your answer to your question uh, on an immediate basis. And not only that, but telemedicine is going to get enriched because you can do a lot of the physical exam yourself mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. send that. Mm-hmm. You can do all this data accumulation about yourself on the relevant condition and you can send that in advance or during the consult. So we're not talking about just two people having a video chat, Mm -hmm. we're talking about actually reviewing of information about the person or the child or whatever. So this is a very exciting area. Uh, We're not geared up for this. None Mm -hmm. of the medical schools in the United States, 140 schools, teach their students how to be good telemedical doctors. Mm Someday, that's going to be part of every medical practice of uh, of people who are in, not surgeons necessarily, but mm-hmm. those who are involved in primary uh, and medical care. We're speaking today with Dr. Eric Topol, cardiologist and director of the Scripps Translational Institute in La Jolla, California, an expert on the use of telemedicine and genomics in healthcare. Dr. Topol has a new book, The Patient Will See You Now, The Future of Medicine is in Your Hands. Let's uh, take a look at the role of genomics. Genomics. Genomic testing is getting cheaper all the time. It's 
but it's increasingly playing a role in tailored protocols for treating things like cancer. In fact, you cite the case of Angelina Jolie, who lost her mother to ovarian cancer, and she had herself tested for the BRCA gene, which increases the likelihood of both breast and ovarian cancer, and chose to take a proactive approach to to that likelihood. Can you tell us why you find her case so compelling? Well, she's a central character uh, in the book, Mark, uh, because she's a, a real sign of our times. That famous op-ed that she wrote, My yeah, Choice, right. everything about it was her choice. Her choice of having this mutation screening that is sequencing her BRCA1 and 2 genes, and then after finding that she had one of the serious mutations to have the um, bilateral mastectomy, and her choice of trying to teach the world about her whole situation and the the choice that she made. This wasn't possible just a few years ago. And uh, what's happened in a rapid period of time is that each individual gets to make the call. This isn't for everyone, but the point is this is an opportunity of having access to their information. In her case, it was about her genetic information. She's also going to undergo ovarian Mm -hmm. removal. So this is, I think, a totally different look of how medicine's been practiced, and these are not a lightweight decisions. So the fact that she is such an immense public figure mm-hmm. uh, is also part of this thing. And, of course, genetics is, you know, you can have your own genome sequence, and over the next few years, millions of people are going to have mm-hmm. their genome sequence, and that's going to help uh, in making choices for each of those individuals. As a cardiologist, and hypertension being one of the things that our cardiologist colleagues, along with primary care, treat day in and day out, I guess the the question is, is it possible to do this absent um, ever having in-person contact or having a relationship with the primary care provider? Hypertension would lend itself to being diagnosed because you checked your own blood pressure. Um, certainly, you know, the physical exam, one could use the stethoscope component of the smartphone. One could do a micro drop of blood pretty soon uh, and get all of their lipid panel and so forth. I guess as as a cardiologist, are you comfortable with thinking that all of this can happen outside of ever needing to see the person in situations? Are we really moving to a place where all of this can be done remotely? Well, not all of it, so much of it. The fact that the intimacy of the, the, the human touch factor between a doctor and mm-hmm. patient, I, I don't believe that's ever going to get lost, but I do think it's going to be decompressed. So the fact that you can offload back to the patient mm-hmm. a lot of this data collection, and for example, you mentioned hypertension, Margaret. Well, there will be a watch uh, or ways to get blood pressure, every heartbeat uh, going to your phone and graft. And while you're sleeping, while you're in traffic, while you're having um, you know, a stressful experience, mm-hmm. th- times we never even had that measurement mm-hmm. before. Mm-hmm. But then the person can say, well, you know, I was uh, under stress because of such and such. And these are not things that doctors have that context, mm-hmm. but it, the, the consumers do. Mm-hmm. And that's what's a whole different look here. Um, so basically, you've got this consumer patient armed with their information. They, they have that knowledge that we as doctors don't have. And then we come together for providing the discussion of guidance and mm-hmm. the, the wisdom and experience of the doctor. But that is so much of the doctor's work today besides having to fill out forms, collecting data, you know, ordering the tests that the person eventually right. will do almost all their routine lab tests themselves. 
Dr. Topol, we recently had Dr. Eric uh, Viri on the show, the medical director of the X Prize competition, and we're getting closer to that ever uh, handheld diagnostic tool that really uh, puts the power of healthcare management in the hands of consumers. And I, I know we're all excited about it. I think those of us who grew up in the Star Trek generation remember the tricorder. It's not that far around the corner. And you also note that things are changing in medical school arena as well. For instance, medical students at Mount Sinai in New York are no longer being given stethoscopes, but instead are being treated uh, and trained to use smartphones with sensors. I don't know how we're going to recognize them as uh, physicians uh, without the stethoscope uh, around their around their neck. I think actually that raises a, a question about the cultural changes that are going on, but also tell us about, not only about the cultural changes that are going on within within medicine, but the revolution in technology. How's how's it going to assist clinicians in their task and the implications for training new providers? Well, this is all part of this kind of through-and-through, across-the-board revolution and the stethoscope, which is the icon of medicine. And as you've pointed out, Mark, you know, it's it's how you identify <laughs> healthcare professionals. It's it's an obsolete uh, 200-year-old uh, analog. But I love not recording my stethoscope. Anything. I, I know, but it's worthless. Uh, basically, listening to sounds. I mean, I used to do teach on rounds. I mean, I love to. I, that's how I was trained. You know, all the splitting of the second heart sound, all yes, these things. Galloping. Yeah, yeah, all that stuff and uh, diastolic rubs and anyway, it's all a bunch of past tense. You know, it's like you can see everything with a high resolution ultrasound. You can carry in your pocket. And once you see everything, you say, why would I ever listen to that stuff? That is so old, you know. And so that's just really uh, another part of not just education, but this rebooting of doctors. Because, you know, we order 130 million ultrasound studies a year in this country, mm-hmm. which is, you know, well over $100 billion. If we just use this as part of our physical exam, we wouldn't have to order too many of those studies. Well, we just but, had Stephen Brill on the li- last week on the show, and he would agree with you. <laughs> There's yeah, too, I know too Stephen much. Is, is right on. I mean, but in effect, in his book uh, that just came out, I mean, he didn't really get into this whole side of the innovation, which um, is, of course, that's what was really, the, the to me, uh, so extraordinary, so remarkable that we can harness things that exist today and have drastic reductions in cost, but we're not doing it because of the profound resistance within the medical community. We could go on for hours with you, but let me just see if I can wrap up with the the question that's always front and center in my mind on this. Uh, All of this makes perfect sense, particularly around single, isolated issues for patients. But when people, and particularly we would say perhaps uh, people we're most familiar with, people who are low-income and confronted with lots of different complex challenges in their lives present. It's rarely for an issue. It's for an entire kind of multiplicity of issues. What's, what's, the, what's the solution out there for complexity in healthcare as, as complex as treating hypertension or rashes or those things which are often put forward when we talk about uh, telemedicine and e-consults and apps are? It's when you wrap all that up, wrap it in the context of people's emotional lives, their health habits, past histories of trauma, chronic illness as well as preventive care needs, that things get kind of sticky. What what do you see out there? Is that the place where the provider uh, still sort of has a place for separating things out with people and helping them get a handle on many issues, not just single issues? 
Right. I mean, this is, um, I think, uh, as you're uh, alluding to, uh, not a simple matter. I, I do want to just touch on the poor um, and the digital divide for a moment, though, because you, you mentioned that, Margaret. And that is, uh, it may wind up being far more prudent to give people uh, smartphones who don't have the and service contracts uh -huh. because that's a total minor cost compared to you know forty five hundred dollars a night in the hospital right. and all the other things that uh, are involved with emergency room visits in our healthcare system today. In fact, we've just done a trial where we gave uh, in a randomized trial where we gave half the people um, the uh, device and, and service contract. So. There is a digital divide that exists. There is a problem around the world without access to care. Mm -hmm. But there's a new way of collecting data and information for each individual. And what I've learned um, is that patients are really eager to have their data. Mm -hmm. That you know, And all the surveys indicate 80 to 90% would like to have their data and information. But the precious um, uh, involvement to review that with a doctor will never be lost. It's just that it's a different way of going forward. Um, it's, it's something that uh, it's an evolving way of a partnership. And to me, that's, that's um, exciting mm -hmm. if we let it happen. Mm -hmm. We've been uh, speaking today with Dr. Eric Topol, cardiologist and director of Scripps Translational Science Institute in La Jolla, California. Dr. Topol's new book is out. Um, the patient. We'll see you now. The future of medicine is in your hands. You can learn more about his work by going to stsiweb.org, or you can follow him on Twitter at Eric Topol. Uh, Dr. Topol, thank you so much uh, for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare. Oh, thanks so much for having me. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, do retiring members of Congress get free medical care for life? No, they don't. A chain email about House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi makes that false claim and also greatly exaggerates what Pelosi could receive as a pension. We'll stick with the health care claim. Members of Congress don't receive free health care while they're in office or upon retirement. Under the Affordable Care Act, beginning in 2014, insurance coverage for members of Congress switched from the Federal Employees Health Benefits Program, that's the government's employer-sponsored private insurance market for federal employees, to to the healthcare marketplaces created by the law. Under both systems, workers and the government both pay for insurance coverage. Like most employer-sponsored plans, the government pays a certain percentage of premiums, in this case 72%, and the workers pay the rest. That's still the case for congressional retirees. They don't get free insurance. They pay the same share of premiums as active federal employees. According to the Office of Personnel Management, retirees will be eligible to purchase insurance through the Federal Employees Health Benefits Program if they meet certain criteria. They must be eligible for retirement, and they must have been continuously enrolled in one of the government's employer-sponsored health plans for five years before retirement. 
And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. It's a known fact that the current generation of American children is more obese than any previous generation. And at a Washington, D.C. community health center, Unity Healthcare, a pediatrician was in a quandary over how to tackle this growing health scourge. He began with a unique solution targeted to a teen patient whose body mass index, or BMI, had already landed her in the obese category. What he did was write a prescription for getting off the bus one stop earlier on her way to school. Dr. Robert Zarr of Unity Community Health Center understood that without motivation to move more, kids just might not do it. The patient complied with the prescription and has moved from the obese down to the overweight category, certainly an improvement. He then decided to expand this program by working with the D.C. Parks Department, mapping out all the potential walks and play area kids have within the city's parks, mapping 380 of them so far. How to get there, parking, is parking available if someone's going to drive, bike racks. Dr. Zar writes park prescriptions on a special prescription pad in English and Spanish with the words RX for outdoor activity and a schedule slot that asks, when and where will you play outside this week? I like to listen and find out what it is my patients like to do and then gauge the parks I prescribe based on their interests, based on the things they're willing to do. He wants to make the prescription for outdoor activity adaptable for all of his patients and adaptable for pediatricians around the country. He's planning to create an app for his parks database where providers and patients alike can use it and one day he'd like to be able to track his patients' activities in the parks. Rx for outdoor activity, partnering clinicians, park administrators, patients, and families to move more, yielding fitter, healthier young people. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center. Thank you.